shared in the first service, uh, just having one of those moments in my life, um, and I just think, you know, confession is, is good for the soul. Uh, I think you lead with transparency and vulnerability, and just, you know, having one of those crises of faith uh, in my life, um, it's kind of like today is a day like, <laughs> I'm just believing. I'm just believing that God's good, that God is just, because it's struggle, struggle to understand a world that he allowed or he has allowed or he has created a world in which Wisconsin could beat Iowa. Last night again. You need to pray for me. I'm hanging on by a dear thread today, or a thin thread. It was a rough night for me, because I tell you what, it's fun beating Ohio State, it's fun beating Michigan, it's fun beating a lot of other teams, any other team. But I really like to beat Wisconsin. And on the flip side, I really don't like losing to Wisconsin. So you pray for me, okay? Will you do that? No. I'm just joking. I, uh, it is what it is. It's life, right? But something a lot greater going on is what we're talking about, what we're looking at. Um, as we approach our birth date, milestone, man, there is this unique portion of Scripture that um, as we do with the milestone, we kind of, who are we? Where am I at? Where am I going? What's going on? What do I need to know? Um, there's a unique portion of scripture um, where Jesus Christ himself gives us an inside look at what he sees the church as, what he sees uh, the condition of different churches, the spiritual realities. It's so unique, like when he, when he, when he spoke to John and this revelation of Jesus Christ, and he showed, hey, I've been gone 60 years. You know what I was like, you know my life, and then I left you because it's a greater thing that the Holy Spirit could be spread abroad. And uh, Philip Yancey says the most amazing thing that he thinks has ever happened in the world is Jesus Christ came to this earth, did what he did, and then he left his church in the hands of men. Men. His baby, his bride, he left it in the hands of us to make it happen. And so this is a unique opportunity to see inside Jesus' heart as he looks at his precious possession, his, again, his bride. He calls it his bride. He's coming back for his bride. What is he seeing? And in these seven churches that we've looked at, we've looked at six. We're on the last one today. We begin to see that um, there's things about us that we need to be aware of. And like any good relationship, when there's those um, those moments when the relationship is it's vulnerable or it's it's failing or it's it's in crisis, we begin to look at why did it get there? What is happening? What do I need to change? What do I need to see? That's what we see in these seven letters. I would remind you of this though: that this isn't just a church diagnostic. Like, okay, we're gonna look at churches, that was kinda okay for two months. But really, the reason why churches fail are because people fail. Churches become a certain way because the people first in the church became away, that way. And so when we're looking 
at these churches, we realize that this is far more than just a church diagnostic. This is actually an individual message to all of us. And in fact, the question I hope that you're asking yourself through this series is, which letter would Jesus send to me? Which letter would he postmark to my address and say, hey, this is you. This is where you're at. This is what's going on inside you. Um, These are seven churches that are represented then and they're represented now. You remember it's in Asia Minor that these churches were written to. Ephesus is the mother of church. John is on the Isle of Patmos right there as he's exiled for his faith. They just took him to a deserted island, dumped him off. It was a way of persecution. You keep saying you believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. We can't do anything to you. They actually tried to burn him in oil one time. Um, They said, oh, just exile him to an island. That would be an awful life, a way to finish out. So he's on this island. Jesus appears to him in the revelation of Jesus Christ. But he is from Ephesus. That's where he spent a lot of his time. That's where Paul went and spent a lot of years. This place was a strong church. And it seems that this church impacted the whole region. Um, This church helped start all of these churches. And we've worked our way through these churches in in this postal route is what it was. If you mailed a letter from Smyrna to Philadelphia, it wouldn't have went this way. It would have went around like even today we do. And so we've looked at the unique characteristics. Ephesus, a church, I mean, it was like, wow. But yet they had become a going through the motions church because there was going through the motions lifestyle of the people. And he says, you need to capture that first love that you had. It's Smyrna, this place that uh, faced tremendous persecution and um, survived because they remained faithful to Jesus. It's just a great picture of all these churches. This is the only one that's left. Like these people that worship this morning in Smyrna, what was ancient Smyrna, they can actually point and trace their roots back to the first century. That, that church still exists all through the years. Only one of, this, of these seven. And they had the hardest time. They faced the most intense persecution. So again, a tremendous picture to us of the overcoming grace of Jesus Christ. In the midst of our greatest trials and hardships, nothing is greater than the power of Jesus Christ. Smyrna shows us that. These churches, they kept kind of doing a little bit of in, uh, in the culture and in Jesus, and they wanted kind of both, and it was a lot easier just to, uh, to change the teachings of Jesus. I'm kind of doing a dance there, wasn't I? I have a, a 12-year-old son, so I can actually do the, no. Some of you know what that is, but, um, you know, th- th- these churches, he's like, listen, you've taken my teaching and you've twisted it, you've changed it to fit what makes for an accommodating lifestyle. We, we face this all the time. Our culture pressures us. You can't believe that. That's intolerant. That's not loving. You actually think that that kind of behavior is wrong? How can you say that? And Jesus was very clear in saying, listen, I created us to live a certain way. And so what happens is we're like, maybe Jesus didn't really mean that. Or maybe we should interpret this a little different. Well, that's what was happening with these churches right here. And Jesus is like, you cannot do that. You cannot take what I said and twisted. You've got Sardis that was dead and Philadelphia, which was a great example of what God was doing. And now we come to this Laodicea. Laodicea. How many of you recognize that word, Laodicea? 
this is great. I heard this preached a lot when I was growing up. I heard Laodicea. You see, people, uh, they took these seven churches and they decided, you know what? I think they actually mean more than just seven churches in the world at all times. I think it's actually kind of an allegorical, metaphorical, or a kind of a picture of the church in general for the last 2,000 years. And so for the first couple centuries, the church looked like Ephesus. and Then it looked like Smyrna when it faced the great persecution from Rome. And then it looked like this when it was, um, when it was uh, some of the church was taking the teachings of Jesus. And, and, and they've got this whole map, man. It's impressive like it's really interesting and I sit there and think wow that that kind of makes sense you know like although I don't think that's really what he was trying to write it wasn't like the rest of Revelation where you know a horse means this and a bear means this and all that Um, but they what they've done is then they come down to this and like now we live in the days of Laodicea we are in the last days and we're in the days of Laodicea have any else heard that Man, I really came from a weird place. <laughs> so you heard this a lot. Like, we are the Laodicean church. The modern day church is the Laodicean church because that's where we fit into the church ages because these were seven church ages. I don't believe that. Uh, I just believe these seven churches are represented right now everywhere in the world. This is what happens. This is what happens. We tend to slide off into these different things or, or we remain faithful like Smyrna or Philadelphia and we do great things. But this Laodicean church is what um, a lot of times people say, hey, um, this is who we are today presently. Here's what I want us to see this morning. Last church, right? To the angel in the church in Laodicea write, and remember, every one of these churches, when he's introduced himself, he's taken a certain part of who he is that was really relevant to what he's about to say to them. He says, listen, remember this about me? Why you need to know this about me is because what I'm about ready to say to you, my character has something to say to that. There's something you can grab a hold of that you really need to focus on about me. And in a letter like we would, maybe we would remind somebody of some you know, shared experience or common thing that we have as we're trying to kind of create a, I'm, I'm writing it to you about this, but I want you to remember this. That's what Jesus is doing. And so these opening words are so crucial. And he says, these are the words of the amen. The amen. Jesus is saying, I am the Amen. Now, amen carries with it this idea of firm, fixed, certain, unchangeable. Uh, it's a, obviously a, a phrase in scripture that's used a lot, amen. It's like something's uttered and we see it as truth and we say, amen, that's right, that's true. And he says, Jesus says, I am the amen. I am the fixed, certain, unchanging truth. Um, Isaiah talks about God, the God of amen. God is amen. He's God of truth. And he comes back and he says, listen, I'm the God of the amen, the faithful and true witness. Like, I'm truth. I'm really truth, 
right? It's like a, a, a double emphasis here. And then he comes around and says, the ruler of God's creation. He says, listen, I am the truth, but actually I am the source of truth. I am it. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we begin to read this letter, we're introduced to think about the fact that whatever Jesus said was true. There is no doubt. There is no gray. There is no, um, well, Jesus said this, but you know what? Um, Buddha says this, or Confucius says this, or Gandhi said that, or um, the, the, the Greek God Zeus this, and Greek mythology says this, and, and so Jesus is, he says true things, but these other people say true things, and so it's kind of Jesus kind of, no, he's saying, listen, I am the truth. Remember what he said when he said he's the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he's saying here. Hey guys, remember, I'm truth, I'm the source of truth. What I say is true. I see things exactly the way that they are. I think that's important for us to remember because we do live in a very, very subjective, relative culture where when you go to college, when you go to certain workplaces, when you live in certain areas where there's philosophies of the world, so many times Jesus has now become just a good moral teacher that some people follow. Amen? You can say amen. It'd be all right. It's true. And guess what? Jesus never even gave the opportunity for that to be true. He makes exclusive claims that either, like C.S. Lewis said, either he's a, he's a lunatic, he's a crazy person, he's a, he's a liar, he says, I am the only truth, and he's not, so he's a liar, or he's Lord, he really is the truth. Jesus makes that kind of claim about himself. He didn't say, I'm one of many, he said, I am the one. Can you grab a hold of that in our relative, subjective, changing world? Jesus is the truth. That's what he says to this church. So, let's understand this church. Laodicea, if you lived in Laodicea in that day, you probably were part of the 1%, okay? I mean, incredibly wealthy. In this region, Laodicea was the banking center. Think in our country, Wall Street. Wall Street, that's Laodicea. I mean, the wealth was there, the banking center of this whole entire, well, it's not there now, but think with me, region. It's Laodicea, you're very wealthy, very wealthy, very rich town. Um, you know, Indian Hills of Cincinnati, I, I, I relate with that. Um, you're talking, you know, million dollar homes everywhere, kind of, kind of lifestyle, that's Laodicea. It was a place where they had a renowned medical center. Um, People came to train there. People came to find healing, especially on your eyes. In that area, there was a certain powder that was unique to that area that they actually had learned to mix with certain oils. They created this salve 
the salve that people would go if they were struggling with their eyesight, and obviously in that day without glasses, and people, you know, they would flock there. People would train there, people would come there. Think Cleveland Clinic, think Mayo Clinic of, of optometry, right? And uh, they would put this eye, and it had healing qualities. So people came, and they were known for that. It was on the sign when you drove into town. You know, Napoleon is the home of Sam Meese, right? Three-time state champ. I read that when I drive into Napoleon, right? That's what would have been on this sign. Home of, I don't know what they called the hospital back then, but it's a medical center. It's like, wow. It was also a place where the local farmers were able to, uh, they had developed a, a certain type of wool, black wool. It was luxurious, it was used in carpets because of its durability, but it was also, it made fine clothing. I mean, if you're going to the Oscars or the Grammys, you're going to a red carpet event, this is where you're going. This is where you're going to find a tuxedo or a dress. Because of that black wool, it, it created just luxurious clothing. And so you've got kind of, a, you've got that whole influence there. Very affluent very um, high-class area. One thing that was unique about this place, though, was because of its location, it had the absence of good water. You need water, right? You need good water to have a town, to have a civilization. We understand that. We live right on a river. Everywhere you, you know, you think about your major cities, there's mostly water source, and that's so important. Laodicea never became an important military town because it didn't have good water. So what they had had to do is they had had to import water into their town. There was a couple areas where they did this. Um, if Laodicea was here, there was a river here. It would dry up a lot, though. It wasn't great. Up here in high, high you can read, um, you probably read it the same way I did. Um, there were hot springs. There was, people would go up there, it's like, uh, I don't know, I've been by the hot springs in Arkansas, never gotten one, but you can do that. It's a therapeutic thing. It's like, you know, healing type stuff. There's a lot of that stuff up here, and they could actually, they could take this hot springs water, and they would try to bring it down to Laodicea. Down here around Colossae, there was cool streams, a lot of cool streams. And so what they did is they developed an aqueduct system. They took the hot water here and tried to bring it here. They took the cold water there and tried to bring it over. In fact, I got a picture. This is, this is the real deal. This is legit. This is one of the aqueducts from Laodicea. You know, 1900-something years later. There it is. And that was, um, that's what the water flowed through. But what happened was bringing it from the, from the north, bringing it from the east, Traveling five and six and seven miles. Hot water did what? It lost its steam. Lost its heat. Cool water did what? Warmed up. Wasn't fresh. And they always lived with this reality. We don't get good water. The water we get is awful. And they were always having to try to figure out what to do with that. It, it, they say the water became tepid, like just, ugh. Um, 
you know, take for instance coffee. We love coffee to be what? Hot, or you might even love coffee to be what? Cold, iced coffee, right? About right now, this coffee is about ready to do what? It's becoming lukewarm, is it not? And you give this another 10 minutes, and you're gonna drink it, and it's gonna be not good. That was their water that they always lived with. And so to understand Laodicea is to understand this. To understand what Jesus always does is he always takes what we understand and communicates spiritual realities. And so when you begin to see what he says to this church, you begin to understand they knew exactly what he was talking about. That's what Jesus always does. He takes the truth around us, the realities around us, and makes spiritual application into our life. These are the words I want you to think of when you think of this church. Mild, moderate, balanced. You say, what's wrong with that? You know, a lot of us would, you know, I'm a moderate. I'm I'm moderate. You know, politically, I'm moderate. I don't believe in one party or the other necessarily. I think, I'm just a moderate, right? Moderate. Balance, we're always, we always talk about looking for balance in our lives. We need balance, and so we're, everything about our lives is so balanced. We're just trying to create all sorts of balance, right? Mild, we strive, I think most people strive to be mild. What they mean by that is like they're just not crazy emotional or crazy people, right? They're just mild. That's why last night you would realize that's never a reality for me. No, seriously. <laughs> In fact, there was one moment when, I mean, come on, we stopped and we outplayed them last night. You can go watch the game. And yet we, they punt the ball to us. We're getting the ball back. We've stopped them. They punted inside our 10-yard line. I mean, we've just, we're, and the punt goes up. The punt, the punt returner decides not to, to, to receive it, right? So it's bouncing on the ground. And one of our blockers has no idea that it's bouncing around on the ground. He's blocking. The ball hits the back of his heel, barely touches it, but then it's a live ball, right? He has no idea. Wisconsin falls on it. They go to go 10 yards to get a touchdown. It was just like that. It was, is there a God? (laughs) Seriously. Come on, like, this cannot be happening. And Dave texted me during the game. He said, did you just break something right now? He said, no, I didn't, Dave, but I did hit the stool in front of me. Come on. So mild might be out for me. Most people are trying to be mild, right? Balanced. But I want you to hear what Jesus is saying. I think you might rethink what the objectives of our life should be. He says this, I know your deeds. And then he's, listen, look what he's doing. I know your deeds. You know, I was... I was fixated on these words. I love what John MacArthur says. Deeds always reveal what a person is. Always. Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. In fact, in Romans chapter 2, verse 6, in this seminal portion of Scripture, Paul makes it clear God will judge you on the basis of your deeds. God will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, 
he'll give eternal life. This is scripture. I'm just reading Romans. To those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, he'll bring wrath and indignation. You say, wait a minute. I thought we were saved by grace through faith and all that stuff, right? MacArthur would respond, that's right, we are. But whether we are saved or not shows up in our deeds. That's why James says, your faith is made known by your works. Right? We practice this all the time in regular common sense life. We believe people are because of the way they act. Amen? I show my love for my wife by my actions toward her. And I could tell her I love her all day and act in ways that are unloving and you and I would know that I don't love her. I know your deeds. Every man will be judged according to his deeds. Got quiet. We live in a messed up, we live in a messed up culture. And our evangelical culture has picked out certain portions of scripture that we love to fixate on and we don't take the whole of scripture. I know your deeds. Jesus is so clear in all these seven churches. He's interested in how you live. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. That makes sense to them, right? I wish you were one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to what? Spit you out of my mouth. Isn't spitting one of the most insulting things we could do, right? I'd rather you hit me in the nose than spit in my face. It's just insulting, right? It's a, it's a repulsive act. I'm not gonna do it, I almost did. You're okay. But when I spit, there's something to that, right? I'm repulsed. If I spit at somebody, it's because I'm repulsed by their actions. I have indignation toward them. Jesus uses this kind of phraseology that your lifestyle, you're neither hot nor cold. You're like that water that you all know that comes into Laodicea and you hate to drink it. The minute you drink it, maybe you've just done a workout, you're hot and sweaty, you need something cool and refreshing and you drink it and you're like, ugh, it doesn't work. Or, you know, you're, uh, you just want a therapeutic, you want hot water, you want a hot shower, you, 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 you need that, you go in and it's just lukewarm. Doesn't do anything for you. He said, that's the way that you are. Now remember how he opened this. I am the truth, I'm the source of truth, whatever I see is true, whatever I say is true. And so no doubt they are thinking, hey, we're a church. We get together every Sunday. We do good things, we're good people. He says, no. He says, listen, the reality is you're not hot or cold. You're just lukewarm. You're mediocre is word for me. And Jesus despises mediocre. Jesus despises mediocre. He says, you can't say that word in the same sentence as Jesus. Jesus can't despise anything. Jesus spitting things out of his mouth. He can't. Jesus despises mediocre. 
You know, Max Dupree was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company called Herman Miller. And he was an expert on leadership. A lot of people looked toward him for advice and really smart, super smart guy. And he was asked what the most difficult thing in his life was that he faced. And he says this. He used this phrase, the interception of entropy. I'm sure you're like me, you're like, what? Entropy is a term from physics. It's in the law of second, in the second law of thermodynamics. It's the availability of energy. It speaks to the fact that the universe is winding down, right? We know that. It's the idea that everything that is left to itself has a tendency to deteriorate. Entropy. Dupree says, listen, that's not only true of the physical universe, it's actually one of the greatest enemies of the universe, it's the greatest enemies of the human spirit. A person becomes apathetic or complacent or settles for the path of least resistance in some area of life. Dreams die, hopes fade, and a terrible thing happens. A person learns that they can live with mediocrity. He says, these people here, You had a good start, this church sprung up, but now you're living mediocre, you're lukewarm. What does mediocre look like? I would say one of the first things that it looks like is moralism. Mediocre living is a moralistic approach to life. I'm a good person, I have good morals. I don't lie, steal, and cheat. And I tried to share a phrase this morning I couldn't remember. I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go go with girls who do. (laughs) I think that's what they always used to say. In other words, man, I'm a good person. And yet we we don't realize that the Jesus life is something different than being a good person. (gasps) What do you mean by that? Jesus' life is not moralism. It is something even beyond moralism. I like what Greg Moore says. I said that Jesus died for my sins. He said, I sang the lyrics on the screen. I prayed before meals. I gave God props for my achievements. I must be a Christian. But he said this, sure, God wasn't my all in all. Sure, I never read his word. Sure, I didn't pray very much. Sure, I secretly loved sin. Sure, holiness seemed dreadfully boring. Sure, I rarely rarely owned him in public or spent time with him in private. But he understood I was only human after all. No one is perfect. Greg Moore said, I prayed like the Pharisees. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men around me. The fornicators, the liars, the stealers, the cheats. And he said, I realized that I was this man. I had settled for a mediocre understanding of what the gospel was truly. I thought it was moralism. I thought if I could find the right behaviors, the right belief system and the right behaviors, then I was a Christian. And yet I love what Francis Chan says. Lukewarm people They're the kind of people who give money to the church and to charity as long as it doesn't impinge on their standard of living. Lukewarm people tend to choose what is popular over what is right when they are in conflict. Lukewarm people really don't want to be saved from their sin. They want to be only saved from the penalty 
of their sin. Lukewarm people are moved by stories about people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not act. They assume such action for extreme Christians are for extreme Christians, not average ones. Lukewarm people gauge their morality or goodness by comparing themselves to the secular world. Lukewarm say they love Jesus and he is indeed part of their lives, but only a part. They give them a section of their time, their money, their thoughts. But they don't, he's not allowed to control their lives. Lukewarm people think about life on earth much more than they think about eternity in heaven. Lukewarm people do what is, whatever is necessary to keep themselves from feeling too guilty. Lukewarm people are continually concerned with playing it safe. They are slaves to the God of control. Lukewarm people do not live by faith. Their lives are structured so that they never have to. And Jesus looked on at these people and said, that's who you are. You're mediocre. You see, what he called us to was a lifestyle that is abundant, it's free, it's life-giving, and it's so purposeful that the idea of moralism being the goal is far too shallow. It's a shadow of what the gospel is truly about. Does God create good moral people? Do Jesus' followers have the highest morals? Absolutely. But they have something else. They have the life of Jesus in them that empowers them to share a love and to live a life that gives love and life into a world that needs it. The Jesus life is something extraordinary where you and I begin to reach depths of character that reveal the faithfulness of our God, that we can go through trial and persecution and hardship and still triumph and overcome and not lose our faith and not quit and in fact become better people. The life of Jesus in us creates in us a sense of serving and living with a purpose where we look every day at our world around us instead of thinking, I checked this box off. I am a good moral person. It instead looks around and says, God, how can I be used by you to bring about your life into this world? It's something that's far beyond moralism. And he says, you have become lukewarm. You, you are hot nor cold. I'd rather that you be either be refreshing or be therapeutic. You're just like that water that comes into our city. And Jesus spits that out of his mouth. It's what Paul says, that people have the form of godliness, but deny the power thereof. They don't have the power of Jesus in him. They have the form of a belief about him. And he says this, you say, remember, he is truth, source of truth, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. So often, we subtly fall into the temptation that because God has given us material blessing, that it means spiritual life. It does not 
And Jesus, who sees clearer than anything else, sees everything that's true, says, listen, you have bought into the health, wealth, and prosperity thinking. And you think because you have that God must be blessing and he's pleased with you. But he says this, you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you. Would you buy from me gold refined in the fire? You have all this gold. You're the banking center of the whole region. You have trusted and depended on your wealth. Well, I am offering to you a gold that is far more precious than the silver and gold of this physical world. Would you buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich? I like what it was... uh, First Peter, he says this about those people. These trials, these hardships, the circumstance of life have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, a greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire. He says, I wanna give you something more valuable than the gold you possess in your bank. It's a gold that comes from your faith being refined and deepened and strengthened and grown so that you might become rich, truly rich people. The richest people that ever live are the people whose dependency on Jesus Christ is the greatest. You see, the greatest ones that have ever lived in our world since the church has started faced tremendous poverty and persecution and suffered with their physical health, suffered they did not have. And in fact, Paul says that I can do all things through Christ. What is the context of that? He said it's being content in whether I have or I don't have. In either way, I have learned the secret is contentment and Christ gives me that ability. Rich people, through Jesus' eyes, are people whose faith has been developed strong in him. He says, I want to give you white clothes to wear so that you can cover your nakedness. What a, what a picture, right? The black wool, the fine attire that they placed such a premium on and people paid so much money for. He says, I want to give you some clothes. They're white to wear, they are of extreme value and they cover the nakedness of your condition. This white garment is the garment that comes from placing your trust and faith and dependency on Jesus Christ. Those are the ones that are truly covered that are not shameful. And he says what? And I wanna give you a salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Isn't this cool? He takes everything about their culture, everything they depended on, everything they thought was important, everything they were self-sufficient with, and he says, listen, I've got something better than that. Go get your eyes fixed. It's good. Fix that physical part. I can give you something that's even better. I can take the scales off your eyes spiritually so that you see truth, so that you're able to comprehend what's right, so you're able to follow that. I'll put a salve on your eyes, a salve of the gospel, so that you can see. You see, Jesus despises mediocrity, but Jesus defines reality. 
And you and I are in the safest place in the world when we allow Jesus to define the reality of our life. And he says, listen, remember, what I'm telling you is true. You ever had those conversations? Uh, I've had those conversations with my kids, right? I don't like to have these conversations. They're hard talks, but it's so important that I say these things to them because in the moment it's like, ugh, but it, it is so beneficial going forward. Hey, this part, this behavior is only going to lead you down a road that is gonna be broken and chaotic and you're gonna suffer and you're not gonna be happy and you're not gonna experience peace. So I'm willing to have the hard talk with you now to try to help you see. That's what he's doing with them. And he's saying, listen, will you let me define reality? You're trusting in wealth. You're trusting in who you've been. You're trusting, you've just become trusting in things that aren't truly what I'm about. And you're lukewarm. But guess what Jesus always does? He does this. He says, listen, I want to spit the way you have out of my mouth I want you to see that I can give you something better than what you've trusted in. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. I'm telling you this because I love you. How many of you ever had that happen to you? Ever had your dad spank you and then tell you this hurt me more than it hurts you? What? I'm doing this because I love you. Okay. That's kind of one of these things. Those whom I love, I... So be earnest and change. Repent. And here's what he says. Here I am. What you need is me. How do you become hot or cold? How do you get out of the lukewarm? It's always attached back to the person and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what erases lukewarm living. That's what brings you above the life of mediocrity. That's what gives you the energy and the ability, the enablement to live a consistently godly life. A life that has energy to see God work in you and change you. The energy that he gives to then give you some persistent usefulness in this world. Where you look back over your life and you say, you know what? I, I committed to something. I saw that God could use me in this way and just for 30 or 40 years, I just faithfully did that and God used me and I look back and I don't know how in the world I made a difference in, the, in my friends, in my circle of influence, in people's life. I didn't do that. God was energizing me over and over and over. This is the gospel, people. It's not moralism. It's not some kind of, it's Jesus himself through resurrecting power coming inside of us. And as we nurture and foster that relationship, just as we do with our marriages, we make it strong, we make it good. He brings something, a dynamic into our lives that we can never accomplish, that we can't do. I'm so frustrated in my life. I've been so frustrated in my life at times because I've tried to be good. I've tried to actually live out the words of scripture, but it's been in my own strength and I always fell short. I could never make it last. I could go for a little while and then boom. I could think a certain way and then boom. I would get sarcastic and I would get jaded and I would get cynical and I couldn't keep my thinking on the things of Christ and I couldn't live a certain way. I can't, I can't, I can't and you can't either. 
And what happens is we slip into a life of mediocrity. It's just who I am. Can't really gain any traction. And all the while Jesus is saying, no, it makes me so angry when you live that way. It makes me just wanna spit out of my mouth because I never intended for you to live that way. That's not the life I called you to. Not a life of religion or moralism. It's a life of being energized by me, of hearing, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. What do you and I need? How do we live above mediocre? What is it that you need in your life to become consistent? What is it that you need in your life to find the purpose that you've always been looking for? It's this, invite Jesus in, his spirit in you. Allow him to just come in. I promise you he'll forgive you for all of the twisted turns and crooked ways and ups and downs and starts and stops. He doesn't give a rip about that. It's not some kind of earning thing. Well. 34 times you screwed up. I'm gonna have to see something before I decide to do this for you. No, that's not how he operates at all. He's just always saying, would you come? Would you come? I'm at your heart's door. I want in. I wanna eat with you, which is fellowship, right? Communion, it's connection. Oh, people, this is it. Says to the one who does this, who's victorious, who lets me in. Because if you let me in, you get victory. Not you get victory and somehow then I'm, no, when you let me in, victory's already assured. When I'm in your life, when I'm present, when you're walking with me, you get victory. I will give the right to sit with him on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with the Father on his throne. You see, Jesus, not only, not only does he, uh, despise mediocrity and not only does he define reality but this is the most important hopeful thing we could ever hear he delivers opportunity that's what he does and my sincere desire for you as your pastor my sincere desire for my own life and i've lived i've lived times as a pastor where i was mediocre i was lukewarm i had shifted and subtly fallen into believing i believe the right things I had the right approach. I had good morals and I actually, but all the while I was not allowing my life to be energized by the Holy Spirit and it was just mediocre. The hope is for you and I, my hope is for you and I, is that each one of us live lives above mediocrity because God never intended for us to be mediocre. He intended for your life to shine, to shine so bright. People look and say, you know what? I remember the way that person was. What happened? And they, they do things. They live a life. I don't understand that. They don't get anything out of that. They love people that are unlovable. They give themselves a time and service on things that they don't get anything out of that. That's because Jesus like, it's this dynamic of the gospel. It's the Jesus life. That's a life that's not mediocre. That's the life that he gets so frustrated because we believe that's what we're supposed to do. So we believe that's all we got. And all the while, he's like, I think he's almost spitting mad. You ever been spitting mad?
Because he said, I got so much for you. I got so much more. Would you just walk with me today? Would you invite me in? I'll tell you what, if it helps, if you gotta do this every day, just picture Jesus at your heart door that in the morning when you start your day. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Will you let me in today? If you'll just do that every day, mediocrity is in your rear view window and a blessed and abundant life is yours. We pray with me this morning, Father. We so desperately want to be people that are significant and that have significance. It's the way you wired us. Lord, we want to experience a full life, abundant life. We want to know what it is to have consistent, sure, firm relationships. Most importantly, we have a, a wiring in our soul that desperately, deeply has to have that connected relationship with you. As St. Augustine said, our hearts are always restless until we find our rest in you. And Lord, you have the ability to give us something above mediocre. Would you just give us a willingness and heart that invites you in each and every day and invites you into our lives and realize you're the source that we need. We're not doing religion. We're walking in a relationship with Jesus Christ and that changes everything. Make it so, I pray. Would you go with us from this place throughout this week? Would you help us to open our heart's door to you at each and every turn? It's allowing you to just literally come in and live in our life. And if there's moments where we feel like you're outside of our heart, just remember, just open the door. Lord, do this, I pray, in the strong, powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen, amen. Thank you, guys. You're dismissed. 10 o'clock next week, right? 10 o'clock, see you there. It's gonna be a great celebration.